Crosswalk Church Podcast in Phoenix, Arizona. Many of you know that uh, since July, we have been calling for a discipleship pastor here at Crosswalk. Uh, We are ready to keep moving forward in our ministry, and we really feel that there's a, a, a huge need for us to have a pastor who will focus on our growth groups our uh, our community teams that really meet around God's word every week and also to build out a, a program called Crosswalk Institute so we can all dive more deeply into the word of God. And so we've called for a, a discipleship pastor about a month ago. The Holy Spirit led us to call Pastor Dan Solofra uh, from uh, Rib Mountain, uh, Wisconsin. And he sent me a letter just this morning that I'm going to read to you uh, outlining whether or not he is accepting or declining this call. So here's what he writes. Dear family at Crosswalk, it is with a joyful heart and with great anticipation that I'm writing to let you know that I have accepted the divine call to serve as the discipleship pastor of Crosswalk goes on and he says, I want to thank all of you so much for your prayers and for the support of the staff over the past month. I understand that the ministry at Crosswalk is a unique ministry, and I know the role you've called me to fill will be a challenging one, but I have been encouraged by the dedication of the many volunteers, that means you, and the staff to reach out with the good news of Jesus Christ, and I want to serve with you. At this point, our plan for the next two months is a little sketchy. My wife, Tanya, and I will be flying down in the next month to meet personally with the staff and leaders and explore possibilities of where we may live. After that, as the details become more clear, we'll share pertinent information with all of you. Right now, we are very excited, but we know that we have a lot of work ahead of us. Please keep the prayers coming. We look forward to seeing all of you soon. In Christ, Pastor Dan Salofra. Yay, exactly. Isn't that awesome? I am super excited. He is a great pastor. You guys are going to love him, and it's going to be phenomenal for us. Uh, In light of that, I also want to remind you that we are in the final three-month, our final phase three of the Moving Mountains offering. We're hoping to raise an additional $100,000 for uh, supporting the ministry and the family of Pastor Salofra, Pastor Dan, as we'll call him. And so don't forget to get more information about that. Also, at the Resource Center on the patio, there are letters that you can find that will give you more information about this. In in our first uh, month, October, which is the final three months, we we gathered in a little over $6,500. So we still have a good long stretch to go to get to our $100,000 goal. But I'm confident that the Holy Spirit, that God is going to lead us to have a successful outcome to our Moving Mountains campaign, and that ultimately we're going to have plenty of resources. Understand that this $100,000 is not just for Pastor Salofra's salary. It is for for salary and benefits, obviously, over a two 
to three-year stretch and also for an operating budget so that he can purchase and have the tools that he needs for his ministry, like a computer and so on and so forth. So if it sounds like a rather large amount to you, realize that this is an amount that we're hoping to use over the next two to three years and ministry money so that he can function. So that's that. Let's dive into Revelation Enjoy, boy, do we have a lot of reasons for joy this morning? Baptisms and accepted pastor calls, it's good stuff. Revelation 13. Let me explain a little bit to you before I read this single verse. Revelation is a book that a lot of people find to be very complicated, and and actually a lot of people are a little frightened of the book of Revelation because it's filled with visions that the Apostle John received late in his life. He was an old man, and God knew that he needed encouragement because he was actually imprisoned on an island, and to the outward eye, it could very much seem to someone as dedicated as John and the people that he was pastoring and helping even while he was on, imprisoned on this island, that Satan was winning the day. It could have looked very much like, wow, uh, Christians and Christ followers, we're not winning. What's the victory? Why, why are we saying that we've won the victory? Because by all outward appearances, it would seem that Satan is winning the day. And I think many of us today would look around in our world and think some pretty similar things. Like, wow, we talk about the victory of Easter and the resurrection, and yet it certainly still seems very often in our lives that Satan is having a heyday. The message of the book of Revelation is, don't buy into the perception. The message of the book of Revelation is, no matter how gloomy it might look, the victory truly has already been achieved. It's been won. And we are living in that victory. And the book of Revelation basically peels back the veil so that we can see the real victory that Jesus Christ won for us at the cross and at the empty tomb. Now, what we're going to read this morning is a short verse where God honestly acknowledges the appearances. He says, this is what you're going to see. And God is never one to hide things. He doesn't hide it from us. He didn't hide it from the Apostle John. He says, this is what you're going to see. And one of the things you're going to see is that Satan and his allies will spread lies. That's in their very nature. They're going to lie about me. They're going to lie about heaven, the place where I live. And they're going to lie about you, the people who belong living in heaven. So let's read Revelation chapter 13, verse 6. It, and the it here, by the way, is a beast that is coming out of the sea in this, in this vision that John has received. I'll explain that in just a moment. It opened its mouth to blaspheme God. Blaspheme means to speak evil of and to speak lies about. To blaspheme God and to slander his name and his dwelling place and those who live in heaven. It opened its mouth to blaspheme God and to slander his name in his dwelling place and those who live in heaven. It, in John the Apostle's vision, is a beast. Satan is represented in this part of Revelation as a dragon who's standing on the shore of a sea. And out of the sea, as Satan the dragon stands there, emerges this beast. And from the description, a very fantastic description um, of this beast, 
we can relate this beast back to an Old Testament vision, very similar vision that God gave to the prophet Daniel. And in that case, we know clearly that Daniel's vision of a very similar beast was referencing four very powerful governments that were about to come and be enemies of God, be allies of Satan. The Babylonian Empire, the Persian Empire, later the Greek Empire, and finally the Roman Empire. We're not sure, actually, as you look at the book of Revelation, if this beast is meant to exactly correspond to that beast. But here's what we think. Looking at John and his situation on the island of Patmos, he was imprisoned there because of that fourth great world power, the Romans. You see, John was there because he was actually, by preaching Christ, saying something that the state completely opposed. Remember, in those days, there was no such thing as separation of church and state. In fact, church and state were so intertwined that you were to believe, according to Roman authorities, that your God was the Roman emperor. So clearly, when John comes along and says, no, that's not right, that's a lie, the Roman emperor is not God, he's just a human being like you or me. If you really want to know who God is, see Jesus Christ. That's who God is. Know the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's the true God John is teaching. And so he's imprisoned for sedition, for opposing the state, because he's opposing the teaching that the emperor is God. He's placed on this prison island, and it must seem to him, and maybe even to many of the believers, that the Roman government has absolute power. And it must seem to them that this Roman very powerful Roman government is in an alliance with Satan himself. And so most people who look at this beast out of the sea would say that's a historical reality that this, this uh, government, this very powerful Roman empire was going to blaspheme God, slander his name and his dwelling place and those who live in heaven. Now, can I tell you for sure without any shadow of a doubt that's what the beast that comes out of the sea represents? No, because there are several alternate um, interpretations of that. So here's all I'm going to say because there is something that is absolutely certain. This beast out of the sea is Satan's ally. And you and I know that right down to today, Satan has many friends and allies who are willing to step alongside him and fight him. Very powerful allies. We often talk about the three great enemies of every Christ follower. The devil, the world, and our own sinful flesh. And those enemies are still very active today and can, just like the book of Revelation teaches, make it appear like we're losing, not winning. The victory is not ours according to appearances, but that is why God gave John this vision to say, this is what it's, what, what it's going to look like, this is what's going to happen. And I want you to see what he's saying. This ally of Satan, this beast, opens its mouth to speak lies about God, but not just about God. Do you see the next phrase? This ally of Satan also slanders his name and his dwelling place, meaning heaven. I don't know if you've ever thought about it before, but 
Satan does not want you to believe in heaven. He doesn't want you to believe, even if you do believe in heaven, that heaven is a place that you'd want to go and stay and live for eternity. And he not only slanders God's name and his dwelling place, but he also slanders the people who live in heaven, the people who've already gone to live in heaven, the people like us who will one day enjoy living in heaven. He's also going to tell lies about us. I want you to think of this as a direct attack on the gospel. And while we're not mentioning Jesus or the cross or the resurrection at this point, what verse is the most common verse that you use, that you hear when I use the term the gospel? Right? You see it all the time at football games. I was at a Suns game. It was there at the Suns game. John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish. And what's the the whole end goal of that gospel message? Shall not perish, but have eternal life. You rip the have eternal life and the promise and the goodness out of heaven. You are ripping the gospel apart. Because the very reason that Jesus came and shed his blood on the cross for you, the very reason God, three days later, took him up out of his tomb, raised him from death in an actual physical resurrection, is so that you can enjoy heaven for eternity. Do you see why Satan would want to tell lies about that goal? Because if he can get us to go, ho-hum, oh well, Who cares if I go to heaven? Maybe heaven isn't the best place for me. Maybe I'd rather be over there somewhere else. Maybe it's not as hot over there as everyone has told me. Kind of like Phoenix. (laughs) You see, if Satan can diminish heaven or even get it to disappear entirely, he's won a huge victory against Jesus Christ and his good news of eternal salvation and forgiveness for us. So this is why it's so critical. And Satan is going to tell lies. In any war between two enemies, you're always going to have what in modern warfare terms we call psyops. I don't know if you know what psyops are, but in the military, psyops is a, a reference that's used for all the efforts, usually by means of propaganda and lies and myths, to get at people's hearts and minds and attitudes to try to discourage them from their goal and from their mission. You and I are called to be on a mission through faith in Christ, to get to heaven one day. If Satan can discourage us in that mission by telling us that it's not all that great of a place, he's won a huge victory. And that's why we thought it was so important to talk about Satan's smear against heaven. So write this down. Questions about heaven that an enemy of Christ would want to plant in our heads. Number one. Why would I want to live there? Look, if, if, if you've heard 
Doesn't the Bible say that heaven is a place where we're going to worship God all the time, 24-7, and it's going to be so good? And thought to yourself, so heaven is going to be 24-7 church? Now, Pastor, Pastor Jeff, he's good, and I like his preaching, but sometimes it already seems like an eternity. I don't know if I want to spend heaven in church all the time, right? Do I really want to live there? Or maybe you've adopted a little bit of cartoon theology, right? Where, according to the cartoons, when you get to heaven, you are issued a cloud and a harp, and you spend the rest of forever strumming your harp. And you would say, hmm, I'm not a musician. Why would I want to live there? You see, there are so many ways that Satan can get us thinking, why would I want to be there? And here's a second one, and I put it in your notes as well. It's very similar. Will anyone I would want to hang out with for eternity be there? I think all of our pictures of heaven are different. For me, I, I always think when I hear the word heaven of a painting I saw many years ago of this beautiful mountain landscape, Alp-like mountains with pine trees nestled down here, and little lake with a stream cascading out of it, and a, and a warm cabin with the yellow lights on, and I think, that's heaven. How could it be better than that? It's so gorgeous and so beautiful. I don't know if any of you have seen uh, the commercial. My, my wife, Julie, she loves to watch HGTV shows. There's a commercial on there right now for a Prius, and if you've watched those four Prius cars scooting through sort of a cartoon landscape, but it's gorgeous, and it's beautiful and it's perfect and ideal our heart just sort of vibes with that right but not everybody's picture of heaven is like that some people's picture of heaven is about being with their friends and their family and maybe having a meal and just being comfortable and not having to fight battles anymore and it's just we're around and the friendship is so wonderful perfect fellowship and so what is Satan naturally going to tackle? What's it going to lie about? He's going to say, so you think there's going to be perfect fellowship with these people? Christians? Christ followers? Hypocrites? You don't want to hang out with Christians when you're alive. Why would you want to hang out with them after you've died in eternity? Wouldn't it be better to just hang out with the more fun side? Come on, how many of you haven't thought that, right? Do I really want to hang out with Christ followers for eternity? Now, realistically, some of us are going to say, yes, that's going to be wonderful. But there are also going to be people who will say, nah, they're just a bunch of hypocrites. Why would I want to hang out with them? And here's the final one. I think the most, these are just the top three. There are many other deceptions and propaganda that 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 Satan puts out there, but Here's the final one. Isn't a bird in the hand worth two in the bush? Isn't it better to focus on success here and, and not have that pie-in-the-sky theology of the Christ followers that says, no matter how bad it goes here, just wait, you'll get your pie in the sky. And it, Satan just totally diminishes the hope that we have in heaven by saying, put all your effort, put all your time into succeeding here. And isn't that why Jesus told that parable about the man who was storing up all this stuff in his barns? One day, 
opened those barn doors and he peeked inside and he said, Oh my goodness, look at how much great stuff I have in here. I have stored it all up. My barn is full. The only thing left for me to do is build more barns because I got so much stuff and it's great. All I need to do for the rest of my life is eat and drink and be merry. You know how that story ends? Someone comes into that man's life and says, you fool, put all your effort into the here and now. Don't you realize that your soul is going to be required of you this very night and you're not prepared? See, it's so important for us to understand, and this is why Jesus even went after Satan's lies that it is not just about the here and now, that this here and now is a mere blip, a snap of the fingers compared to what we're going to be able to enjoy in eternity next to God with God around us all the time. Satan is going to continue to spread his deceptions and his myths and his lies, but why? In your crosswalk notes, I put this question, why would Satan want to lie about heaven. Well, first of all, because Satan wants to attack our desire to go to heaven. You see, a, a lot of times I think we misread emotions. So, for example, in my, in my counseling, I often have to remind people that the emotion of anger in and of itself is not a sin. There are a lot of people that think just to be angry is sinful. All anger is sin. But then I point out to them, well, if that's the case, then God must have sinned because he gets angry sometimes, right? That anger really is something that God gave us to be a healthy warning bell and alarm to let us know that someone has trespassed on our heart and on our territory. And it's to help us maintain healthy boundaries. Now, the Bible does say this, in your anger, do not sin. Meaning that anger in and of itself is not a sin, but how you handle and how you respond to your anger can certainly be a sin, or it could be something very good and God-pleasing too, but anger in and of itself is not a sin. I think many people feel the same way about the emotion of desire. Desire. Last night in the Saturday night service, I was... Uh, teaching on the same point, and it, and it became clear to me that people were saying, well, if I desire something, isn't that in and of itself sinful to desire something? And I had to say, no, desire is very much like anger. Desire is neutral in and of itself. It's how you go about desiring. It's what you go about desiring. A person, two people could be standing next to each other, Desiring the very same thing, one could be desiring it sinfully because they're greedy and selfish and envious, and that would be a sin. This person could be desiring something because they want to share with others and they want to help others, and they say, Lord, if I had that, I would do so much for your kingdom, and I would love to do that. And it would be a very pure and wonderful desire. Last week we talked about how God has set eternity in the human heart. And, and, and one of the things I think that means is that God has placed a desire 
in our heart a holy desire, a pure desire for eternity. I think there's a reason that when that Prius commercial comes on and creates, the marketers create this beautiful little world, that your heart sort of vibes with that. Or when you're out in nature and you see this beautiful, pristine, almost perfect landscape that you find your heart and mind drawn to that, it's because God has placed a desire in your heart for the transcendent and the perfect and the beautiful, the eternal and the heavenly. And that's a good desire. Satan does not want you to have and hold on to that desire. And so he's going to tell lies. And they're not really very different lies from the ones that we tell. Think back to when you were a kid. And maybe you had a a friend and neither of you had a bicycle. But Christmas was coming up and you both were talking to each other all the time about getting a bicycle, right? And he says to you, you know what? I've just been bugging my parents day and night. I want a bicycle so badly. And you think to yourself, well, (laughs) if I had his parents, I could bug them day and night. But I know my parents. If I say one more time I want a bicycle to them, they're going to say to me, if you ever say bicycle to us again, you're never getting a bicycle. Ever have parents like that? Christmas comes. You receive the bicycle, but your friend does not. And on that day when you receive your bicycle, you're so excited to ride that bicycle and you're riding it all over the neighborhood and you want to share your excitement with your best friend. But your best friend, he didn't get a bicycle. And yet you can't stop yourself. You go over there and you say, Look what I got, dude. This is so amazing. It's just the perfect bike. I love it so much. And what does your friend want to do to you right now? Yeah, break your nose, right? And why? Because something that he so passionately desired, he doesn't receive, but you do. Take a look at the next verse in your crosswalk notes. And the angels, and by the way, one of those angels was the angel Satan. And the angels who did not keep their positions of authority, they rebelled. They did not, they did not stay under God's authority. They abandoned their proper dwelling, which was heaven. So in this rebellion, they're thrown out of heaven. And it says, these God has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. Satan and his allies wanted heaven so bad, they wanted to be fully in control of it and have no one, not even God himself in their way, so that they could live in heaven forever and do in heaven what they wanted to do. They passionately, they were greedy to have heaven, to be their own. And what happened to them, according to that passage? They were kicked out. What they so passionately desired, they now not only don't have, they have no possibility of ever having. Do you know what that creates in a person? Bitterness and anger. And a willingness to say, I'm miserable. And misery always loves company. Why would Satan lie? He's bitter. 
And he's disillusioned that something that he so badly wanted. Remember the old Aesop's fable? Where the fox comes and he sees these beautiful grapes. And he jumps and jumps and jumps to try to get those grapes. And he just can't quite reach them. Finally, he gets tired and he walks away. And what does he say to himself? Ah, those grapes. They were probably just sour anyway. Right? Why does Satan lie to us? Because he's angry and he's bitter and he has sour grapes. And I know that might sound weird to talk about Satan that way. But in that sense, he's not all too different from us in our sinful nature. And so he wants you to be discouraged and not even desire to have heaven. Now, I was not the best kid in the world growing up. If my friend had gotten a bicycle and I hadn't gotten a bicycle, you know, the first thing I would have said to him, now that looks like a girl's bike anyway. Now, girls, don't write me. I love girls' bikes. I love girls' bikes. But I would have told my friend that looks like a girl's bike because I would have been bitter and disillusioned and I would have wanted to downplay what he had received. And that's what Satan is doing. So let's get the real truth here. And I'm going to run through these passages pretty quickly. And I'm just going to tell you what is the real truth. Today we're at the 30,000 foot level. We're going to drill down more into the specifics of what heaven will be like and the promises God has made about eternal life as we go forward in this heaven series. But for today, I want you to leave with these amazing and beautiful promises about what heaven will really be like and push Satan's myths, lies, and propaganda out of the way. Psalm 16, 10, and 11, the psalmist says, Because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, nor will you let your faithful ones see decay. You make known to me, and underline these next words, the path of life. And then read on. You will fill me with joy, underline the word joy, in your presence, with eternal pleasures, and underline those words, eternal pleasures at your right hand. You see what the promise of heaven is? Something I'll bet you didn't even imagine, that heaven is going to be a place that is vibrant and alive, filled with color. It's not going to be a black and white existence in heaven. Those of you who are a little older like me know the benefit of color television versus black and white television. It's so much more vibrant And heaven is going to be this alive. It's not going to be a dead place. Don't let Satan go. Why would you want to go there? It's going to be dead there. A bunch of Christians wanting to follow their Christian rules. That's what Satan is going to say. God says, no, it's going to be alive and wonderful. Filled with adventure. Full of joy and eternal pleasures. I want you to take note how many times during these next verses the Holy Spirit really says something that says, you know what, you're going to be filled with pure and holy desires near God and those desires are going to be fulfilled in heaven and you're going to enjoy it. Jesus answered him, truly I tell you today you will be with me in paradise. So after we read in the psalm that heaven will be a place of unending life, joy, and pleasure, 
We come to the, the verse where Jesus is hanging on the cross, crucified for us. And next to him is a thief hanging on that cross. And in the very last moments of his life, the thief says, can I be with you in heaven? And Jesus' answer is, today you will be with me. But he doesn't say in heaven. Do you notice what he says? In paradise. Have you ever wanted to go to a place that's just paradise? My wife, Julie, and I, we love to travel. And because of that, I don't know how these guys do it, but they always figure out the thing that you like. And then you start getting blasted with emails, right, about that thing. So I I got an email this last week, and it said this. It said, you, dear reader, can enjoy the most authentic stay in a Scottish castle, the best place to kiss in Paris, the most picturesque village in Switzerland, the best restaurant in Prague. Enjoy the best cave diving in Belize, the spiciest nights in Mexico, and the finest church in the Americas. Don't you just want to go there? Order our travel guide. Now imagine that God is saying to you, when you go to heaven, you're going to be in paradise. And it is going to be the paradise that you can't even imagine or dream of. If you think of Hawaii or Belize or ancient castles in Europe or whatever you think of as paradise, it's going to pale in comparison That word actually, paradise, means a beautiful garden. It was used by the ancient kings of Babylon when they they made things like uh, the hanging gardens of Babylon, this beautiful place where you can enjoy. That's what heaven is going to be, a beautiful paradise. So turn your notes over. Heaven will be a paradise. And it is going to be better than anything you will experience here. In fact, Paul says, I desire to depart and be with Christ. And he doesn't say just which is better. Do you know how he says it? Which is better by far. Take a look at this passage at the top of page 2. Instead, they were longing. Notice, they were desiring a better country a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. The writer to the Hebrews is talking about some Christ followers that are going through some really tough things in their life. And he, and he lists just a whole bunch of believers from all the Old Testament, Abraham on down, and the struggles they experienced, the pain and the suffering. And he says, you know why that didn't impact them and why it didn't stop them? Why they didn't give up their hope? Because they were longing for a better country. A place that is better than here by far. I'm guessing that there are some people sitting in this audience today that are going through some painful experiences in their life right now. Maybe they've got a health issue. And they're, they're wondering, will this ever go away? Maybe they're wondering, will it ever even get diagnosed? And I'm sick, and I'm tired of being sick, and this is painful. Maybe you have a loved one, someone that you love just so much, and they're maybe nearing the end of their life, or you're worried they are. And you're thinking to yourself, oh my goodness, this is hard, and this is horrible. 
Maybe you've gone through career setbacks or, or serious problems in your relationships. Maybe you have money troubles. Maybe you're so deep in debt you think, man, I don't know if I could ever dig my way out. And you just constantly think to yourself, this is so painful. God wants you to know there's a better country, a place that is better by far, and that it is his gift to you through Jesus Christ, that he is already presenting it to you, that you have it when you have Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Heaven's going to be better than anything we experience here. And why? Because heaven is a place where you and God live directly in each other's presence. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. You know when you're going through those horrible times I was just talking about? And how sometimes it literally gets so horrible that you start to say to yourself, God, where are you? Why have you disappeared when I most needed you? Why have you left me standing here all alone in this pain, in this agony, needing a companion to be with me, and I just don't feel that you're here right now for me, God? Many of us have felt that. Now imagine a better place where you will never have that deserted by God feeling ever again. And, and you weren't deserted here, not really. It felt that way and it was a horrible feeling. But in heaven, that feeling will completely disappear. And you will know that God is living with us. And that's what heaven will be. Us living in the presence of God. And what does that mean? His presence means the absence of some things. In the very next verse, Revelation 21.4, it says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. Living in God's presence means that the pain and the grief and the loss will disappear and it will be completely absent in eternal life in heaven. And won't that be amazing and wonderful? No more loss, no more grief, and no more pain there. And here's the last truth I want to share with you as we close down for the day. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. If you've ever listened or heard the myth that heaven is going to be a very locked down, rules-oriented, oppressive place, I want you to look at that verse. Because look at what it says. It says, when we get into heaven, we... And all creation with us is going to be renewed. And what are we going to experience? Not lockdown, rules, do this, don't do that, but freedom. We're going to be brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. You want adventure? You want a life that is really life? 
And one that you don't have to suffer any negative ramifications anymore because you're free from sin and guilt and shame. That's heaven. A place not only of perfect beauty and fellowship, but a place of perfect freedom and glory. If you take anything home with you from today's message, take this. Know that Satan is a bitter, bitter angel. And he is going to try to tell us lies and diminish the freedom and the glory and the fellowship and the excitement of heaven. He's going to try to tell you that it's not what it is all stacked up to be. Don't believe him. Keep coming back to what God has promised in his word that is really true about this eternal home that Jesus says to you and me, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will return and come and take you to be with myself. Let's pray. Dear Father in heaven, We thank you so much that you've given us such amazing truths, such amazing promises of our eternal home. Thank you, Lord, for creating a place of perfection, a place of perfect beauty, a place where one day we will be allowed to be perfectly creative and adventurous as free, a place where we will enjoy perfect fellowship. Lord, what a wonderful thing that's going to be. For all the times, Lord, when we've been tempted to believe Satan's lies that diminish the wonder of heaven, we ask for your forgiveness and we ask you to cleanse us from those sins. And Lord, send your spirit into our hearts through these promises, these great and wonderful promises that we read in your gospel message. Lord, don't let that gospel be destroyed in our hearts by having Satan remove a key piece of the puzzle, the whole goal for which Jesus died for us. Lord, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his salvation, his eternal salvation, which he grants to each of us through faith. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. at crosswalkphoenix.com.